New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. If you've tuned into this program, most likely there is little you don't already know about living a healthier and more energized life. But most of us have dozens of stories we can tell about how we self-sabotage our way to that more balanced life. Our guest today, Dr. Azarm Garriman, has her own unique arrangement to the steps we can take toward our emotional and physical well-being. And that will be the focus of our time together today on New Dimensions. Dr. Arzam Garriman is a licensed clinical psychologist and holds advanced degrees in both chemistry and business administration and has conducted many professional training workshops. She is the author of Longing for a Land, A Persian Woman's Story of Individuation, Soul of World, Soul of Word, Persian Poems Make an Offering to the West, and Six Life Secrets of Content Women, A Guide for Emotional Self-Care. Join us for the next hour as we explore the blocks that prevent us from living in our fullness with our guest, Arzam Garriman. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Arzam, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. I'd like to go back just a little bit before we get into the six life secrets, which I found very interesting and very helpful. Your background, you originally, your your home of origin was Iran. Yes. So you moved here at what age and what was the circumstance of that? I lived in Iran until I was 16. And then just as the Persian Revolution was happening, my parents sent me to Switzerland to finish high school. I finished the last two years of high school in Geneva, Switzerland. And then I came to California at age 18. I didn't know anyone, but I attended college. I finished my uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees in chemistry and pursued a degree in business. And then I kind of defected (laughs) and became a psychologist at at age 30. And what was that like for you when you, you had absolutely no family in California when you moved in it? You were separated from your country. And what was it like for you? 
on the surface, it looked like I had rejected my country. I didn't really want to associate much with other Persians. I definitely looked Western. I dressed very Western. I, my intellect um, um, identified very much with the Western way of thinking, linear, scientific. Um, I found that the more Western I became, uh, the less I felt the pain of diaspora. It wasn't conscious at the time, but in retrospect, that's what I did. And um, I was ashamed of being Persian. I was ashamed of what my country had done to herself. And for many years, I thought that I had rejected my mother country when in fact, now I realize that she had rejected me as well as millions of other young people by not providing a nurturing and safe place for us to continue to live. In, in your book, Longing for a Land, you go back into the deep history of this part of the world, and maybe you can share a little bit about that because some of us don't understand. Yes. Um, when, when the title of the book became Longing for a Land, I'm really talking about a psycho-spiritual land. I, I'm not talking about the physical land that, that is Iran because, you know, you can find Persian food uh, pretty much anywhere in California. You can find Persian music. You can find um, many things that Persians, especially in Southern California, call home. So what was it that I missed? Uh, and so I, I began to do more research as I wanted to kind of reconnect with my deeper roots, not the Iran that I had left when I was 16, but the Iran prior to the Arab invasion. Arabs invaded Iran in the 13th century. Persians at the time were Zoroastrian and um, uh, wrote with a different alphabet. Uh, Arabs imposed their religion, which was Islam, uh, onto Persians and within a few centuries imposed their alphabet also on Persians. And today m many Persians don't know that they are writing Farsi, which is the Persian language, using Arabic alphabet. And so um, many Persian words and the psychic images that animate those words began to get blocked from the Persian psyche. And so in some ways, Persians live in diaspora, even though they live in Iran, because they are disconnected psychically from their own language. So in that way, they share the same fate as Navajo Indians and some of the Irish. And so it didn't matter that I lived abroad. 
I was in diaspora, but so were many Persians, well, all Persians who even lived in Iran. And um, so in my journey to reconnect with my home, I felt like I had to go home, not literally, but psycho-spiritually. You had you had some uh, photographs that helped you. Yes, you had this one photograph of a young woman. Yes, and uh, describe. Oh yes, there was a girl. There was a girl that whose picture I found in one of the books from Iran. This was a a village girl. She was probably eleven or twelve. She was wearing a native outfit. Her hands had worked the ground, her hands looked old, her, her, her hands looked dark, and she was sitting there very poised, and I looked at her, and I cut her picture and I put it in the frame, and I felt very ashamed of her. Because, you see, I was ashamed of being Persian. You see, here I'm living in a land of Teutonic figures, these tall, blonde girls who at the drop of a hat can wear a bikini and go to the beach. And here I have long, hairy legs. And, and I thought, you know, if Americans have better refrigerators, if they have better roads, if they have better pens, they just must be better human beings. And it took me several painful years to really realize that it is not so. That that to to truly differentiate myself from the negative image that I had interjected and to truly feel proud of myself and my culture, and the language, and the poetry. And so gradually I began to look at this little girl and um, be able to put her picture. Well, I had turned her frame around on my desk. I, I, I was ashamed of her, literally ashamed of her. But I began to develop a relationship with her, and she became a symbol of that which I had disowned in myself. That's a that's beautiful, and it. When your daughter was born, you really brought in. I I loved how you brought in. You researched and found some of the ancient rituals, and one of them was. Um, is it called Nowruz? Oh, Nowruz is the celebration of the Persian New Year. It's really the biggest festival that Persians celebrate on March twenty first. Yes, and again, that was something that. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. You know, I went to work on uh, on Nowruz. I, I, I actually celebrated Christmas. You know, I, I got the tree, I did presents, I sent cards. I didn't want to have anything to do with Nowruz. But little by little, I missed my Nowruz so much. And um, I wanted to do something special for Nowruz. And so I... Um, Nowruz has no religious connotation whatsoever. It, it's really based on um, fertility rites, and it's deeply symbolic. It's welcoming the first day of spring, 
And my daughter at the time was going to a Montessori school. And every year we formed the ritual of going to her class and celebrating Nowruz with her um, classmates, taking gifts for each one. And, oh, they loved it. They loved it. And um, I, I had some Persian clothes uh, sewn for me and sent to me uh, tribal, beautiful, colorful clothes sent to me. And I wore them to the school. And, and one of the girls, when she saw me in the school playground, she said, can you twirl around and dance? And I twirled around, and one of them said, can I get under your skirt? <laughs> and um, I can't. I'll bet that everyone wanted, wanted that, that yes. dress and that costume, yes. that, that whole uh, celebratory dressing that you had on. I'm, I'm sure everybody wanted it for themselves. Yes, I began to really, really appreciate my language, my culture at such a deep level without ever stepping foot in my country again. That's beautiful. So in just one moment, we're going to be talking about the six life secrets of content women uh, that Azaram Garaman has come up with to help us to live a more balanced life. And if she is the author of Longing for a Land, a story of a Persian woman's individuation in America, and Six Life Secrets of Content Women, a Guide for Emotional Self-Care. If you'd like to be in touch with the work Azarm Garaman, you can go to the website Mazda Connections. That's M-A-Z-D-A, connections.com. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Arzam Garaman, and she's the author of Six Life Secrets of Content Women, A Guide for Emotional Self-Care. And Azarm, what was the inspiration for this book? Justine, when I, when I became a single mother about 12 years ago, I was working full-time. I had a private practice, and I was also teaching some weekends. And my daughter was little i had i had i had was taking care of her um i was caring for our home i i was working i had a garden to take care of house to clean bills food all, all the things that go with living and i would also hear the message 
it wasn't directed so much at me personally, but just a general message of, you know, make yourself priority and take care of yourself. And I honestly ask myself, well, which one of my priorities should become number two for me to become number one? And is that a one-time thing? Like, can I go out to dinner and a movie on Friday night and become priority for three hours? Or And what about the rest of the week? So I didn't really know what it meant to make myself a priority. And it seemed like if I did that on a Friday night, go to a movie and pay for the babysitter, it was a $60, $80 affair. Could I afford that? So for me, taking care of myself created other challenges and and as years went by and I became more skilled at managing my time and priorities I learned what it meant to take care of myself and I realized it is not about facials and creams and buying myself you know expensive clothes it's more about emotionally taking care of myself and strengthening my boundaries and so I don't feel drained in the first place and I vowed that when I have more time and I'm in a better place in my life that I really want to write and share that with my fellow sisters because I see that relationships are so important to women and yet to truly be in happier relationships we have to take care of ourselves first this is not a cliche. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that we won't have time to go through every single uh, of the six uh, secrets that you you have come up with, but I'm going to point out a few of them that just popped out at me. And uh, one of them is that you talk about how to avoid saying yes to requests um, that are made of us. How to how to learn to say a soft no. I mean, we're as as women. We're very good at at doing a lot of things. And so how do we say no to those requests? Yes. That passage comes from a chapter called Close the Door um, to the All-You-Can-Eat 24-Hour Buffet. Many women, in an attempt to become loving and nurturing, really have become a 24-hour buffet. They give, 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 and they're, they're driving themselves to the ground. They're drained, and culture is reinforcing and rewarding them for saying yes. And they're afraid that if they say no, they will be considered rude, and pardon the expression, that they'll be viewed as a bitch. Well, uh, the thing is, it's very important for us to say no, because Unless we learn to say no, we, we, we develop resentment in the long run. And so to take care of ourselves by realizing when to say no and to what to say no. Do I say no to a workout when I have a headache? Or do I say no to, um, uh, let's say, a friend who says, can you come to a movie with me this afternoon? How do I discern what to say no to? One is more more toward self care, and the other one is um, really looking at the the time. I mean, you you want to be with your friend, or you don't want to upset her, or 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 seem like you're rejecting her. It's saying no to the movie. It's. I know that it's really 
these are little things that come up every day. I mean, yes. even a phone solicitation, can you please donate money? Uh, even that is yes. constantly we're having to look at. Yes, um, exactly. And when I give workshops with women, and one of the things I say is, you know, it's like standing in front of a tree and realizing that many leaves of this tree have, let's say, some kind of a disease. They have, say, like brown spots on them. And it becomes overwhelming to think that you have to go and fix every little uh, leaf. Well, it's not like that. You, you give a systemic uh, insecticide or fertilizer to the root. And so taking care of ourselves is not a question of fixing every little thought and dealing with every little emotion. It's systemically shifting the paradigm and making ourselves a priority. Now, as soon as we do that, we feel guilty. We feel guilty because in terms of evolution, we've been wired to feel guilty. You know, Mother Bear is wired not to stray too far from the cubs. Otherwise, the babies would die and the species wouldn't survive. So it's very natural that as soon as the female of the species begins to take care of herself, the guilt emerges. But that doesn't mean that we should necessarily listen to the guilt. And another dynamic that emerges, which is extremely important, and I think is at the core of why so many attempts that women especially make at self-care eventually fizzles out is, in Jungian terms, when the negative mother archetype, uh, the devouring mother, gets a hold of us. Uh, in fairy tales, she manifests as the witch. She's devouring, she's critical, she sabotages and if we can visualize her as an external entity and, and be aware of her presence, that she's the one that has no concern whatsoever for our wellness. She's the one that sabotages us, that wants to shame us, wants to make us feel bad. And how do we evoke the fairy godmother in us? Who is the fairy godmother in our life? And once we make a commitment to ourselves, to wellness, and to truly be a priority in ourselves, um, then standing up to this witch, when she says, oh, you don't deserve that, oh, you don't deserve to have the good um, outfit, are you sure you deserve that man? All the things that does to sabotage us, we will be in a much better place to uh, answer her back, if you will. One of the questions that you come up with in, in one of the sections, Make a Commitment to Wellness, and you talk about wellness, not just in in a compartmentalized way, like, okay, I'm going to be eating more healthy, and I'll, I'll, I'll do this or that, and they're all compartmentalized. You, you, you kind of look at the whole picture of wellness. Can you talk about that whole picture of wellness? I say right off the back, this book is not about dieting or there is not one more name of a website for people to go to. There is plenty information. Women have many cookbooks. Women have many how-to books. The problem is not, not having information. The question is, what is standing in the way of us applying that? That's such, I just want to underline that question. And I, I wrote that question out. 
what is standing in our way. That's it's this a- witch. It's this witch. And and um, we keep thinking it's us, and we feel guilty about it. It's not us. It's the archetype. It's transpersonal. And, of course, in the old Greece, uh, in the Greek mythology, people understood her transpersonal existence. They went to temples and they made offerings to these dark goddesses. But now we have internalized everything and we think that we are bad. We have no um, self-control. But if we begin to understand that there is this entity and externalize it and begin to dialogue with it and then evoke the fairy godmother in us. So you see, when we come home and somebody has spoken unkindly to us and we hit the refrigerator and eat ice cream, where is the fairy godmother that says, sweetie, you're really hurt. I can see you're hurt. Let's sit down and unwind. Uh, Maybe, maybe... um, writing down in Mm -hmm. your journal would feel better. Mm -hmm. That's what a nurturing uh, figure would do. It's not shoving down cookie dough ice cream. Right. And in our heads, we we talk to ourselves, and we've done many programs on this, that inner critic. We talk to ourselves in a much harsher voice than we would ever, ever say to another. Yes. And what I'm trying to say, see, we keep saying we talk to ourselves. And what I'm trying to say is in archetypal psychology, it is this transpersonal archetype. And as long as we keep personalizing it, as long as we keep personalizing it, we stay tangled. Maybe I'm getting the idea. Okay, uh, I, I know my my sister is very very good at this. Juliet can really do this well. That she can discover one of these archetypes inside herself, and she's just this beautiful artist. And she will just make this incredible collage and yes. artwork, and write about it, and just bring it to life in yes. some way. And she even gives it a name. Yes, and uh, well, that's what I you're like talking to call about. It, well, I don't have to give it a name. Folk tales and fairy tales have given it a name. It's the witch, and it's the. It's but we this. might want to give it a personal, our personal name, because yes, uh, yes. I don't know. You can. Um, well, yeah, personally, I call it a witch. And and when I know that she's speaking to me, I said, oh, I was doing just fine without you. Go away. Mm-hmm. There you are again. Mm-hmm. Just that. I become aware of it. Mm-hmm. Like I would go and do something nice for myself and I would immediately feel guilty. And now I realize it's her. You see, we keep thinking it's us. It's kind of like putting coffee and cream together and mixing it. It becomes so thoroughly mixed mm-hmm. that we think it's us. It's but not. But isn't there, isn't there something underneath, like a, a, a gift underneath that in some way that that negative energy, that negative archetype, if we dig deep enough, there's there's energy there that we can use in well, some way. Well, the thing is, what 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 we need is to evoke what what I call the the fairy godmother. What six life secrets of content women really is, without ever saying a word about it, is really the positive masculine, which is which is the healthy self assertiveness, the sense of boundary the kindness, um, 
the, the protection that women or men need. We, we've, we've just become an all-you-can-eat buffet. Exactly. But to truly take care of yourself, that's the ingredient of true relatedness. I'm here with Azarm Garaman, and she's the author of The Six Life Secrets of Content Women, A Guide for Emotional Self-Care. If you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to the website, Mazda, M-A-Z-D-A, connections.com or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org my name is justine willis toms you're listening to new dimensions I'm here with Azam Garaman, and uh, she spells her name, by the way, A-Z-A-R-M-G-H-A-R-E-M-A-N. And um, I'm, she's the author of Six Life Secrets of Content Women. And we're, we're talking about those, those secrets right now. Uh, one of the chapters is to live frugally. What do you mean by frugal? It's certainly not being stingy at all. And I, I draw a distinction between um, coupon clipping and um, penny pinching and living frugally. In fact, I think that it's wonderful to enjoy beautiful, wonderful things of life, but appreciate them by wonderful quality um, take good care of them. And I talk about two women, for example, one who buys beautiful wool and cashmere sweaters and takes wonderful care of them and has them for years, or as the other one who goes to kind of cheap stores and has a rapid turnover of merchandise. So to, to truly love what you have and uh, take good care of them and, and not waste is what I mean by living frugally, and to to buy what you need, not necessarily what you want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think in one of the things that you talk about there in living frugally is one of the suggestions is paying cash for per, for uh, purchases. And that's a very that's powerful. I think in paying cash for per, uh, purchases, you're actually passing money. Whereas when you use a card, even your debit card, even your debit card might might you might tend to spend more and not be as careful about it as you could if you actually spent cash. Yes, and and I think we live in a, in a society where we get a lot of immediate gratification for things, whereas sometimes making things ourselves or for example I use the example of cooking more meals at home I happen to love to cook and many people think it takes a lot longer to cook at home or go shop and prepare but you know it has other side benefits you you eat healthier it's a lot less expensive Um, I actually end up saving a lot more time 
You you actually talk about, I, I thought it was a great suggestion, having um, menu, you have your, make up some menus that you kind of like, and you have a grocery list that, next to it for each menu. And then you can mix, mix and match those menus. You don't have to think every single day, what am I going to fix today? No, I think one of the things that really um, overwhelms women in the house is, or whoever is in charge of the kitchen, is cleaning, cooking, and the repetitive things that we do every day. You know, you cut the grass once a week, but you, you prepare meals. If, and if you have children, my goodness, preparing breakfast and lunch. And so I give some very practical tips as to how to organize your time and, and really work very efficiently in the kitchen. It's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. It just really requires some very smart tips. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I cook every meal at home. I love good food. So it's not like I eat boring food, but it's a few principles that apply on how to organize your time in the kitchen and and cut down on the cleaning time. One of the suggestions you have that I, I loved is in you talk about developing more gratitude, but you really encourage us to think about gratitude for the small things. We mostly think of gratitude for our health or our partner, you know, what, whatever those big things are. But you're talking about how there are little things that we can be grateful for during the day. So say something about that. Well, we seem to have this expectation that life owes us something, that, you know, we have to be healthy, that truly that we, we, we are entitled to happiness. I don't think so. And I think the the closer the reality is to our expectations, the more content we are. And sometimes our expectations are unreasonable and they need to be adjusted. But I have come to just really enjoy smaller things of life. There are so many of them. You know, I'm not kidding when I say I really love my morning oatmeal. I love it. It happens every day. And isn't it wonderful to just really appreciate something as simple as that? Um, If I don't appreciate the flower that's in my backyard, what's the point of going to a botanical garden in Canada? You know, Mm -hmm. we feel like we have to leave where we are and go see something bigger, ten times bigger to develop an appreciation. I know for for me, we've in years past have been in an area that has had to go on water ration. And there's, I often think whenever I turn on the faucet and the water starts coming out, I send a little prayer of gratitude that there is fresh, clean water and it's coming out of the tap. Well, when I was in Iran, it, it was not unexpected that sometimes electricity would just disappear in the middle of the day, summer, and it was unpredictable. So for me, my goodness, days, months, months go by here without any interruption. If it goes off for an hour, it makes the headline news, and we just come to take it for granted. I can't bring myself to take it for granted. 
Or even going into a grocery store with all the produce. When have you ever walked into a grocery store when they have been out of milk, bread, or food? Or when have you had to stand in line for eggs or meat? We are very fortunate. And, and, and we need to remember that mm-hmm. for small things. Another idea that you had that I, I loved, you were talking about there's a lot of paper in our life. Uh, we, we get a lot of mail. We just Somehow there's an accumulation of paper. And you talk about how to handle paper. Like you handle it once. In, in other words, you don't let it pile up on, as a stack. You, you move it along. So talk a little bit about that. I, I, I have to be very organized in my life. It's just, it's a one-woman show, basically. And when I get the mail, I look at it, I either shred it, I either take care of it, um, or, let's see, I either shred it or I take care of it, or if it requires my action, for example, let's say it's an insurance bill that I need to do, do something about it, but I know it's not something that I need I have to t- take care of it right that second I put it in a in a in a folder but it will be dealt with very soon I do not pile things um, and this is like also keeping clutter away yes. that's also good for our our peace of mind I I think clutter stresses us out, and and we kind of co-create that. It's important for us to find out what stresses us out. For example, I was telling some women the other day, I said, finding the perfect birthday gift for each friend kind of stresses me out. So every year, I choose a theme. This year, it's buying vases and flowers for everyone. I've bought 12 vases, and everyone will get wonderful flowers for me. And one year it was beautiful stationery. One year it was beautiful soaps and bath products. I buy it and I give it. Now, is that personalized? Well, I don't know of a woman who doesn't like flowers. Mm-hmm. But for me to park my car and go look for the perfect gift, mm-hmm. it stresses me out. Mm-hmm. So I try to eliminate those things. It's getting to know who you are and what, what, uh, what works for you. That reminds me of a beautiful ritual that um, I uh, wrote down and as a wonderful idea. And this has to do with, I think it goes back into your, your cultural roots. But it was if, if someone has died and you are um, th- that person who is left behind, let's say it's someone's spouse or, or their, their mother or whoever, their, even their child, that when some sort of holiday comes up, the mm. first holiday mm-hmm. that comes up since that person has left, there's just such a beautiful remembrance that you share with us in yes. the book. Can you share that? Oh, yes. I love that. I remember when I was a youngster, uh, my aunt had died. My Yes, my aunt had died. And <clears throat> the very first holiday after someone has died is called their first holiday. And so let's say, let's say here in the West, let's say if somebody has died in August, so their first holiday would be Thanksgiving. Okay. And so 
the, the elders of the family. And obviously, it's clear who the elders are. In, in my case, when my aunt had died, my father and my mother um, were the elders. And they bought some fabric for the husband to make a suit and a tie. And my mother had bought some um, fabric for the daughter to make dress. Nothing too colorful, but definitely not black. So it was maybe like navy blue and beige or something like that. And we went to their home and they obviously know what the purpose is. And what this is, is giving them permission to stop the mourning, the mourning process. In other words, there is this ritual that, yes, we know you have been in mourning, but as the elders, everything has timing, that the grief comes to an end and life has to go on. And my uncle, of course, cried. And he said, oh, I can never forget my wife and so on. But then, you know, it's all choreographed by centuries of culture. And my parents insisted and so forth. But then after that, then they're not allowed to wear black anymore. Mm -hmm. And so then they make the new outfit and see, they come back to life. They come back to the mm -hmm. circle of life. And you've you've kind of adapted a, a, another way of doing that with a, with a candle. So say yes. something. Yes, you see, I, 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 I'm I, I'm I've become a grafted tree. You know, I'm I'm neither American nor Persian nor Europe European, but I've sifted through various cultures, and I like to keep what works. And so I love that tradition. And now, when an American friend of mine dies. I like to acknowledge that for their survivor and at the anniversary, I like to uh, give them a candle, um, put it in a terracotta pot, fill it with rice or take some flowers or something at the anniversary. And uh, this is a human experience. It transcends culture and they are very touched by it. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm here with Azaram Gehrman, and she's the author of Six Life Secrets of Content Women. If you'd like to be in touch with her, her website is mazdaconnections.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Azarm Garriman and we're talking about how to be more content and 
and healthy in our lives. You know, there's one thing that popped out at me in 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 your book, and it's those of us who are are good, and many 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 women especially are good at doing a lot of things because we've had to in in all sorts of ways. I mean, we don't even put it on our resume the kinds of things that we handle every day, and. You're, the question that begs, is there something wrong with doing something that you're good at? You know, we're, we're asked to do things. I mean, this, are, this is my personal question because I'm really good at doing a lot of things. And I just keep taking on all these tasks and taking it on because I can do them. So what, what do you suggest for me in my sense of becoming overwhelmed? Yes, there are many highly achieved women who keep taking on more and that's not a problem if they take good care of themselves and are not running on empty. But the thing I often ask is, are they listening to the voice of desire or are they listening to the voice of dictator? Who in them is asking them to work so hard. And what do you mean by dictator? The master that says, faster, faster. What, you only um, have, you only see seven clients a day? You only see uh, ten patients a day? Faster, faster. And it's never good enough. You see, that's that devouring mother. It's never, nothing is ever good enough. It's kind of women who like to have a clean house. You see, it's out of a desire. I love, let's say, to have a clean nest, a clean home. Okay, that's a desire. But then it it gets to a point of obsession where it feels like it's never clean enough. Mm -hmm. And that's the voice of the dictator. What about... uh Finding one of the suggestions, and it comes up several times in your book, finding a, a support, a friend that supports you in your fullness in some way. So talk about how important that yes. is. Be careful who you choose. You want to make sure it's a fairy godmother and not another witch disguised. So often, until we become our own fairy godmother, we may need to find that in someone else. So a wonderful friend. And the friend doesn't have to be a female, male. It could be a male. It could be um, a teacher. It could be a therapist. It could be anyone. But as we begin to make a commitment to all ourselves, uh, we, we, we thrive on relationships. And so to have a support to to carry us through the first few weeks of perhaps setbacks, it will help to have a support who is stronger than us. Another another idea that you, besides adjust, adjusting our expectations, we often, uh, I know I'm very guilty of this, try and fix our our mate, our spouse, our our significant other. We're we're constantly looking to to make them better. So what do you suggest about that? You know, this book has nothing about 
relationships with others. Uh, some people get disappointed. They think, oh boy, another self-help book and and I'm going to find out about how to improve my relationships with others, especially with men. And um, I wasn't interested in writing another book about relationships. I believe that the template, the blueprint for wonderful relationships with others starts with our own relationship with ourselves. So this book is all about nourishing us first. And then when our tank is full, then we will be so satiated that we will be a wonderful resource in another relationship, not a needy, empty cup going around asking somebody else to fill us up. And I, the only thing I say about relationships is um, stop wanting to fix your mate because it dehumanizes them. Um, you, you would develop resentment because it just really shifts the focus from ourselves to them. You know, so many women um, correct their mates. They tuck his shirt in before a family picture, um, criticize the food choices in a restaurant. That just kills romance and truly um, infantilizes a man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in this culture, we are running, running, running really, really fast. There is so much that comes in on us. How would you suggest that we truly create more spaciousness in our lives? I would suggest by speaking more slowly and um, talking more slowly and it would be uncomfortable for many. Um, also, I like the idea of writing. We're so used to typing, <clears throat> but I think when we write something, it activates very different processes in the brain. So even if we write something at night to ourselves, like a page or something, um, it's very helpful for us, M maybe even not knowing how helpful it is, but just doing it, writing slowly, but also practicing to speak more slowly and to walk more slowly. Um, We've just become a manic culture. So, uh, uh, you see, U.S. is such a young country. On a spectrum of world cultures, we act like teenagers. We spend our money foolishly. And I'm not being culturally uh, pompous when I say this. This country has been so good to me. I love this country. I have never, ever felt discriminated against in the 32 years that I've been here. So it's out of love that I say this, but we act like teenagers and we feel invincible. Um, and some of the decisions that we are taking um, might not have the best consequence for us. You, going back to, to writing, um, you suggest, I thought it was really beautiful about how we we kind of fire off emails to each other really fast. We you know, it, it, we're just talking about that fast pace, and you talk about how uh, 
sitting down and handwriting a note and addressing it and yes. putting a stamp on it. Uh, in fact, finding, I know Michael and I like to find really beautiful yes. uh, stamps that, that say something. Yes. Uh, so say something about that. Well, I talk about having creating what's called the emotional first aid kit. I said, you know, we all have a first aid kit like with band-aids and ointments. Why not have a first aid kit when we're hurting? And I talk about what we can put in it. And then I go on to say that nowadays my first aid kit is not like a, a, a basket anymore, but it's a little secretary's desk in my office at home where I have a few wonderful objects on it and some wonderful stationery. And when I feel down, I go to that. It's my uh, refuge. And I write a note to a friend and look at some pictures. I may listen to a CD or light a candle. I have a couple of my daughter's um, pictures when she was young, and it soothes me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, people like to get cards in the mail. I know, mean, it's so rare. I mean, an actual handwritten card is such a gift. Oh, well, it's such a gift. The other thing that, that I do, and I know that you suggested, is is to plan ahead what I do. Here's how I do it. To plan ahead, like my friends' birthdays or anniversaries mm -hmm. or something. At the first of the year, I, I get a new wall calendar, mm -hmm. and I take the old one, and I mark in it, all the dates for the whole year, and I mark it kind mm -hmm. of in red, mm -hmm. and that kind of helps me plan ahead. So I'm not like the last minute yes. saying, "Oh my goodness, it's it's her birthday mm -hmm. or his birthday, and mm -hmm. I forgot, and now I have to run and get a card or something." So I yes. kind of pre prepare that a little ahead of time. It it keeps me feeling at ease in some way. Yes, that's from the chapter "Organize Your Time." Um, th there is so much coming at us. And frankly, I personally don't have the time to run around for last-minute items. I talk about how to really minimize shopping for non-perishables, and I talk about what women can do to save time. Time needs to be spent for things that um, are meaningful and nourishing to us. So if we can minimize the cleaning, if we can minimize the running around looking for a last-minute AAA battery, um, those are this is not rocket science right exactly well i just i just want to thank you so much for putting this down in in a very readable very unique way thank you so much for being part of the new dimensions family of guests i enjoy being with you i've been here with our zarm Garriman, and she is the author of several books, including Longing for a Land, the Story of a Persian Woman's Individuation in America, and Six Life Secrets of Content Women, a Guide for Emotional Self-Care. If you'd like to be in touch with her and her work, you can go to the website mazdaconnections.com. That's M-A-Z-D-A connections.com. Com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. By the way, Azarm Garman spells her name A-Z-A-R-M-G-H-A-R-E-M-A-N. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3406. 
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.